Well, among my favorite scriptures, and I've always really um, just loved John's explanation here. This is what John says in chapter 20. I'm going to read verse 30 and 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And then in verse 31, he says this, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he says this, and by believing, you may have life in his name. By believing, you may have life in his name. John's specifically talking about a belief that leads to life. We know we're all physically alive. And so John is inviting us into what Jesus says when he tells us in John 10.10, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so the title of the message this week, next week, and we don't really know what, how many weeks, is Believe and Have Life. So this is Believe and Have Life, part one. Live out your faith. Let me say it this way, life, so the human experience as God designed it and intends it, because he's the author and the perfecter, right? So life as he designs it can only begin by faith. Anything else is just existing. Believe, repent, and obey, bro, right? So I got the little, see? Now we're wondering. So this came about, we were in a community group uh, uh, or a Bible study, Jamie was leading and we were talking about belief and repentance and obey. I think it was around Christmas time and I was thinking of what to get the, the team. And so I called Jamie, I'm like, bro, I got it, right? So that we designed this and that's the rest of the story. But it's not just, you know, a clever little, this is, this is the, the gospel story. This is the invitation that we are to believe. Which doesn't just mean we're going to see, because this believe and have life, this is going to be the theme. It's going to be the overarching statement under which we're going to build this case for what the gospel is, right? Belief, in the biblical sense, is more than just mental assent to a set of facts. Belief indicates trust. So believe, repent, obey means I believe who Jesus is. I believe in him in such a way that not only do I trust him for my salvation, but I trust that he's going to make me more like him. I'm going to repent, which doesn't just mean a change of mind. It's a change of heart that produces a change of mind that produces a change of action. So the result of belief is that we walk away from our old life, that there's a new king on the throne. And as we walk in that, we obey him. That just simply means, we don't like that word, obey. It sounds aggressive, doesn't it? We, I'm, the, I'm the boss. I only obey myself. I have people all the time. I listen to God. I just don't listen to anybody in my life, right? I'll listen to God if he speaks to me audibly. I just don't listen to my spouse, my pastor, you're right? No, obedience means trusting that Jesus knows what's best. Following Jesus indicates, I don't know, I have this crazy idea that we follow him. When people say, are you a Christian? I don't even know how to, I don't even know. Like, what does that mean? Like, because that means a million things to other people. Like, check green eyes, you know, whatever your political thing. You know, like, it's like a, just like a label. 
I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes my following, sometimes it looks like I'm barely, you know, I'm like, sometimes I'm laying on the ground. You ever see kids in the store and the parent just like drags around, they just lay there? Sometimes Jamie's dragging me around or whoever, you know, like, bro, come on, get up. But it means that I, I, the, the indications that I want to pursue, sometimes slowly, sometimes barely, but I want to pursue him. It means that when I'm not able to, like the man with the mat, his four friends, you have four friends in your life that are going to lift you up and bring you to Jesus. Believe, repent, obey, surrender, and trust. Realizing that by doing this, you lose nothing. You might lose your idea of what's supposed to be good in life, but you lose, you lose nothing else. Because as sure as I stand here, to live as a follower of Jesus is difficult. It's also incredible, incomparable, by, by and large, the best way to live. Surrender and trust. I think fundamentally there are two ways to live in cooperation with God's plan through the new life in Christ, empowered by the Spirit, or opposed to his plan, or observing, indifferent. And if you're indifferent, you're not participating in the plan of God. And so this morning, I want to ask ourselves a couple questions. How are we living? How are you living? How am I living? And how do we want to live? And then we're going to look at this for the next few weeks because I want us to consider this. We affirm Jesus died for our sins. But that is not the end of our spiritual journey. That is the beginning of our spiritual journey. That death was to bring us to life, to make us joint heirs with Christ. It changes our identity in him. It changes our identity with each other. And the exciting thing I want us to consider this morning is that we are called to live as God's people right now, as kingdom of God people right now, not simply to bide our time and wait for heaven. That the purpose of the life of a Christian and the only thing that brings meaning, ultimate and eternal meaning, to our human experience is serving Christ and bringing him glory until he comes again into his kingdom and rules forever. Amen? Amen. And so take a moment, say hi to somebody near you, and then we're going to pray and we're going to dive right in. Lord, we come before you this morning as your children, hungry to receive food from our Father. And so, Father, speak to us fresh. God, I would ask that you remove any preconceived ideas of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, God, that your word would speak fresh to us, that your spirit would confirm your truths. God, that gospel news, good news, only needs to be declared. And so we declare now that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And we want to make him, we want to live as people who make him the Lord of our lives day in and day out to be salt and light. God, so speak to us now and give us spiritual eyes and ears. We pray that your word would 
challenge us where we need challenging, encourage us where we need encouraging, convict us where we need conviction. But that you would do, as, as Pastor Willie said, that you would do whatever heart surgery needs to take place, that we can be more and more like Jesus. And so, Father, increase our faith, increase our hunger for your presence, for your spirit, and for your word. Do what I can't do. Do what no human can do, God. Change our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, so my process is usually Monday, people say, oh, you know what you're preaching? I don't know anything Monday. I try to shut my brain off Monday. I don't want to think of anything at all Monday. So Tuesday, I usually kind of have an idea of what I'm going to preach on, maybe. And then by Wednesday, I'll, I'll, I'll craft it, kind of get an idea, and then I'll revisit it throughout the week after Wednesday. So Wednesday, done. Sermon's done. Checkbox, awesome, ready to go. And I'm, I'm in school. I sat at a class, and so now I'm reading a book. And I'm reading the book, and I'm highlighting stuff. And I'm like, oh, this is good. And as I, I'm highlighting stuff more, like dawns on me like, Man, this is, this is a sermon. Then I'm highlighting and reading more. I'm like, this is, this is really a sermon. And then I felt like God said, yeah, this is Sunday sermon. I'm like, no, not again. So normally I have about 12 pages uh, for a sermon. And this is 32 pages. So we're going to be here. No, <laughs> everyone's like, uh, it'll probably be two, at least two or three weeks because I don't want to go. I don't want to go quickly. And I, and I want to just start by saying this. I love you. I love you with all my heart. I love you with a, with a Jesus kind of love because I've been loved that way, an imperfect love because I'm human. But I've been changed by the love of God, and that love was expressed by people who loved me when I was unlovable. I know that might be hard to believe for some of you. <laughs> Talk to people that know me. But I was so unlovable. And the love of God put on display by people who were patient and kind and loving and self-controlled and gentle made all the difference in my life. And God loves you. That's why he gives us this word. He doesn't give us this word so that we can misunderstand it, so that we can put it on a shelf, so that we can, you know, read it and not apply it. He gives it to us because he loves us. And through this word and through Jesus Christ, we get to see who God is. And so sometimes what that means is deconstructing ideas that we've held, things that maybe we've thought. Because I don't care what dead theologians think. I don't care what, denominational, uh, what denominations think. Those things are helpful to understand. We, we have scripture, and scripture should illuminate and bring clarity to our denominational position. It should illuminate and bring clarity to what the early church fathers had thought. Those things should be assistance. But we don't read the Bible and determine what the Bible says based on what somebody else told us it should say. We read the Bible prayerfully with illumination from the Spirit of God, letting it say what it wants to say. And so I don't apologize, and I'm not sorry if some of the views you hold are stretched. If whatever I say is not biblical, stand up and oppose me. Because it doesn't matter what I think either. 
It matters what God's word says. And especially when I'm preparing and I feel like God's saying, this is the sermon you need to preach. And again, it preaches to me first. I think that that's important. And I think I'm going to listen. And so here's what I want us to understand. You and I have been adopted into God's family based exclusively on what Christ has done. There is no wavering. There's nothing to decipher there. We stand on the completed work of of Christ. We put our trust and faith in what he's done. But that is the beginning of the journey. We don't don't accept Christ as our savior, as I'm going to flesh this out with scripture, and stay king. We don't accept Christ as our savior and remain our own Lord. I would say to you, he is either both or he is neither. Now that does not mean that we got it all figured out. That because we believe in Jesus, that we always do the right thing. In fact, Paul makes pretty clear, as, as much as he had, he literally got knocked off the horse. I mean, Paul had a conversion experience pursued Jesus, gave his life for Jesus. And what does Paul say? I keep doing all the dumb stuff I don't want to do. All the good stuff I want to do, I don't do. Not once. This is a pattern in my life. This is what keeps happening to me over and over again. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And in other letters, Paul says, I can do all things through what? Effort? Through spiritual discipline? Or through Christ? And so... I want us to explore this idea that we are not illegitimate children, that we are heirs, but some of us still live as orphans. Some of us confess Christ and are still trying to find meaning and purpose and value apart from him. And I would say that if we live like that, we don't really believe what Jesus said. Because belief and the biblical sense does not just indicate a set of facts. It indicates trust. It is active. A.W. Toza said, the devil's a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. The Bible says even the demons believe. Believing has to include understanding who God is. It, it has to include a right understanding. It, it involves our intellect. But confess with your mouth and believe with your heart. In that context, the heart is the center of your being. It is everything. It is your affection and your intellect and your actions and your will and your relationships and your emotion. It is to confess, to believe with your heart, with everything you are. It is not reduced to an ABC transaction. And everything I say here, I'm going to flesh out with Scripture. So as I'm annoying you, And as I'm saying things you might not like, just realize that pretty soon Jesus is going to say it. See, the gospel story is more than just Jesus died for our sins. It is that. 
That, that is necessary. Trusting and believing in Jesus starts the process. And here's the example I'm going to use. I was a drug addict. If you've been here for the first time, you're going to hear that eventually anyway. So let me just come right out and say it. For 15 years, I don't know, longer than that, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol. It wasn't a little addiction. It was, it was killing me and ruining my family, and I was steps away from death addiction. But God, but Jesus Christ intervened and changed my life. Now, I couldn't go forward until drugs were, were, until that was dealt with. I couldn't put that aside and continue to, that was, I had to address that. And then I did, and, and God in his grace and mercy helped me to find a place of surrender and trusting in him. That wasn't the end of my story. Sin, the penalty of sin must be removed. You have no chance in living throughout faith, unless it's through faith. But that is the beginning of our journey. And somehow, the evangelical church, the post-Reformation church, has decided, has reduced what Jesus has done to a transaction. And so we deliver the gospel like this. Your problem is that you're a sinner, and the solution is Jesus died. So if you accept that, if that translation takes place, you're good. You're in. And we think as a church, we move people from the undecided to the decided, and everybody goes, how come we're not making disciples? And we're going to look at it, and we're going to flesh it out, but our system is designed to do what we set out to do. And so we focus all our intention, and we're going to see, and this can upset you, but Jesus doesn't do what we do. He doesn't manipulate people. He doesn't argue. He doesn't persuade in the sense that we look at persuasion. The gospel message throughout the scriptures is simply proclaimed. Good news does not have to be sugar-coated. You don't have to convince people. When people walk away from Jesus, and we're going to see he loves them, but he doesn't go chasing after them. He doesn't say, well, no, 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 wait. Before you leave, let's, let's kind of talk about this. Whenever there are crowds following Jesus and the crowds get bigger, Jesus says something and they get smaller. You think that's because he doesn't love people? Or do you think that's because he wants to make clear that the gospel is free, but it's not cheap? That it's a life for a life. That it costs Jesus his life and it will cost you yours. And if that's not the gospel you heard preached, then I'm sorry. But that is the gospel that Jesus preached and Paul preached, and that is the biblical understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. And so that's what I want to talk about. Because we're not called to stop at whatever we think being saved means and wait for the end to come. The book I'm reading, I'm going to quote some things here, but it says, for a salvation culture... It is simply the ability to witness personally to the experience of conversion that matters. And once somebody has had that experience, it's all over until the final party arrives. I've accepted Jesus because, you know, although I'm pursuing the American dream, and I'm Lord, and I'm King, eternal life and forgiveness of sin sounds good. We don't really want forgiveness of sin. What we want is the removal from guilt and shame from sin. Most of us love our sin. We just don't love the effects of our sin. So we've confused repentance with regret. We think they're the same thing. They're not. And so we live with this idea of, I'm the king, and I'm the Lord, and I'm going to pursue the American dream, but it'll be really cool if I check the right box so I know I'm going to heaven. 
But here's the unfolding plan of God from creation until consummation. What God began in the, in the garden was the, the theme of the whole Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament is I will be their God and they will be my people. And what he was doing in the garden was building a city where people would be in relationship with him forever and they would manage and they would govern. And that's still what we're called to do. So if you think being a believer somehow means biding your time when Jesus is going, no, what I'm asking you to do and we're gonna see it, we're gonna, I'm gonna make this case, we're gonna flesh all out with scripture. Jesus is saying, here's what I'm calling you to do if you're a Christian. You are called to begin living out the kingdom of God. Like we say, we're going to die and go to heaven. We don't even know what that means. It's just a place. No, no. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be a place where we're going to reign with God forever as the kingdom of God. So the fulfillment and the promise of Christ is salvation that we enter into become God's people. It's not just an individual transaction. And we are, we are to be God's people with him forever. And here's the thing, we get to do that now. And if you don't want to do that now, what makes you think you want to do that in eternity with him? We have a sin problem. It's a fatal problem. We can't move beyond that. We can't enter into the life without faith in Christ. But the trust and faith the Bible talks about is not a formula. It's not a diagram. And we've reduced it to that. We've reduced it to a transaction and we lose the biggest story, God's plan, the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about it over and over again. His coming is the means by which God's ultimate plan would be realized. We're going to see everywhere he talks about God's kingdom come. There's no scenario in the early church in which those who identify with Christ are not participating as flawed as their participation may be. Jesus doesn't walk by and go, come follow me. And they're like, who are you? Oh, Jesus, no, I believe in you. I, got, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to follow you, but I'll, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower. Let's just say I'm a believer I mean, it would be stupid. We would be like, that's, but we do that somehow. Now, don't get me wrong. I am clearly not talking about by, uh, uh, salvation by works. So let's just get that right out there. Jesus has to be both Savior and Lord and King. And if you have no desire to live for Jesus, to make him your Lord, then I don't believe you've really accepted him as your Savior. Belief indicates trust. It indicates trusting in him, believing who he is. And if you really believe what he did for you and for us, then how could you not trust him? How could you not trust somebody that took your place? Instead, what we do is we show up at court and we're guilty and we say, judge, this guy right here, he's gonna actually go for me He's going to take my, my penalty. And so I'm, I'm good. All right, thanks. I'll, I'll be back. If I need him again to stand in my place, I'll do that. Other than that, I got some stuff to do. And so I'll talk to you later. And nowhere in the Bible is that an indicator of a follower of Jesus. And so if you're not living trying to serve him, you either don't believe in him or you don't trust him. And so we have time for an altar call. That is not a manipulation. That is an opportunity for you to say, you know, because you, know, you look, I want to believe, I want to repent, I want to obey. It begins with belief, but belief leads to repentance and obedience. And if it doesn't, stop folks, you know, well, I'm not obedient. I got to try to be obedient. There's a million ways 
to manipulate, or there's a million ways to motivate people to do stuff. Guilt, shame, obligation, trying to impress other people. And Jesus doesn't care about any of those things. So we can't try to be obedient apart from him. Then again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring all the scriptures to bear with everything I'm saying. So, we, so belief has to begin, and then it leads to what? Repentance. Repentance means I don't want to live the way I used to live. When guys used to come in Teen Challenge, I'd say, I only have one question for you. It's the only question I care about. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about your background. I don't care. Do you want to change? I don't care if you think you can't change. I don't, think, I don't care. I just want to know, do you want to change? And if the answer is yes, then God will work in your life. And if the answer is no, I'll tell them, go home. Leave. Come back when you're ready to change. And that's not just for Teen Challenge, guys. I'm not telling you to go home. But I am telling you that if you're here week after week, month after month, month, and you don't want to change, that's not following Jesus. That's not submission to his will for your life. You're Lord and you're king. And as long as you are, you are an, you are an observer. You are an observer. And he can't work in your heart, in your life. And you're going to be put on the shelf until you say to the potter, have your way with me. And so if you don't like what I've just said, then Jesus is going to say it. And so Mark 12, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Now, we're, we're pretty familiar with that. We've heard a lot, and, and that's what we focus on here. But I, I want us to pause. I want us to focus on something else. Verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all of our heart, with all our understanding, with all of our strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It was a remarkable thing for him to acknowledge that. He's, he's saying, even though I recognize, Jesus, that you really flip the order of things. That it was about the sacrifice to be able to come before you. It was about the letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, no, here's the spirit of the law. And he understands that. And so that's why Jesus says this, which is a remarkable thing, really. When Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared to ask him any more questions. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to talk about that a whole bunch, that idea, the kingdom of God. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in your midst. It's among you. It has come now here on earth, and you are invited to participate, to live that out now in a way that you will live forever. And so we're most familiar with the two greatest commandments here. Maybe we knew or maybe we didn't know that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. 
So Jesus is telling the scribe, he's using their Bible. So he's answering the question right. Because what they're trying to do is trap him. In fact, in Mark 12, verse 13, it says, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. So they're having this back and forth, the best thinkers of the day. Jesus, what about this? And he answers it. And then some of them fall away. Jesus, what about this? And he answers that. And some of them fall away. And this is the third exchange. And now when he answers this, it's sort of encouraging because now he's pointing out to this guy, you're pretty close to the kingdom of God. It's an interesting thing to say. Jesus is saying, the, the, the only problem you have, you don't really know who I am. You don't really believe that I'm the Messiah. The question they had to answer is the same question we have to answer. Jesus is saying, who am I to you really? The story of Jesus is the story of God's unfolding plan. It is Israel's story. It's the human story. And so Jesus makes clear that his coming as the Messiah is a continuation of the unfolding plan of God. I read this summary. One of the scribes here, an expert in Mosaic law, has asked Jesus to identify the primary commandment. And Jesus responds, if we know God, if we love God, and if we love others, we're fulfilling the whole law. In other words, every rule, every law, every commandment, everything has its home in those things. Love God with every fiber of your being. And as a result of that, you will love other people. Jesus is saying all the law and the prophets hang on that. He's saying that's the fulfillment of everything. And we're going to see in another place in John, he, he, he says, you know, this new commandment I give you. And then he repeats Deuteronomy and Leviticus, which was a new commandment. But then he says this, love one another the way I have loved you. In other words, I'm going to define what love looks like. The scribe responds that this threefold commandment even trumps the systems of offering and sacrifice God developed to cover the sins of the Israelites. I mean, that was what most of them didn't understand. And he understood that. And so Jesus says, you've answered it right. He's so close to the kingdom of God. The phrase kingdom of God has been interpreted to mean just going to heaven, right? That's part of it, but it's much more than that. It encompasses much more. It's any situation where God's glory and authority are on display. That means when we live as his people here, we are ushering in. That's what Jesus talks about over and over again, the kingdom of God. You are called, if you're a Christian, to live as a citizen in the kingdom of God, primarily. Not to live primarily as a citizen here, and the kingdom of God thing is added on for later. In this case, the scribe acknowledges the spirit of the law and how it supersedes the specifics of the law. And this leads him very close to salvation. And it's also a provocative statement for him to make. He's identifying with a group of religious leaders. They're attempting to have Jesus arrested. And suddenly Jesus says this thing to him that's a little encouraging. Hey, you, you, you got it right. The only thing in the way now is you. And it says after that, everyone went away. They didn't, they didn't ask him any more questions. See, this is the same Jesus who overturned the temples of the merchants. And then again, we just mentioned after the Herodians and the Pharisees, they ask him about taxes. His answer silences some of them. Then they ask the Sadducees, ask about the resurrection. They too fall quiet. And so now Jesus responds to the scribe, shows encouragement, and the final group grows still. And once Jesus shows the crowd how the Messiah will rule over David, no one asks him anything more. Matthew 22, verse 
verse 46. So what the man has to decide and what we have to decide is do we believe who Jesus claims, if Jesus is who he claims to be? And if we respond that we do, then that changes everything. We remain imperfect, but the entire direction and orientation of our life should change. And if it doesn't, I don't know if we really believe. And I'm sorry if this challenges your denominational or theological flavor. It is thoroughly biblical. And nowhere in Scripture is the plan of God reduced to an ABC or a manipulative plea. You don't argue people into the kingdom. Good news is simply announced and proclaimed, and it stands on its own. Jesus doesn't manipulate. He doesn't placate. He doesn't soften the message. Paul's gospel is to declare who Jesus is. N.T. Wright says, the, the gospel that Paul preaches is to simply stand and to say, among all false gods, God is the one true God. That is still the only gospel that's proclaimed. And people will either accept that and their lives will be changed, or they will reject that and remain their own king and their own Lord. But the one thing you cannot do is have both. If we believe in Christ, we make him our Lord and King. We desire to make him our Lord and King. And it doesn't mean that we do it perfectly, but it means we try together, empowered by his spirit, directed by his word, as his people, to do it. And when we fall and we fail, in his grace and mercy, he picks us up and we do it again. But if we've not made him our Lord and King, we're still worshiping a false god, the idol of self. The book I'm reading, Scott McKnight, says this, we can be tempted to turn the story of God and what he is doing in this world through Israel and Christ into a story simply about me and my own personal salvation. In other words, the plan has a way of cutting the story from a story about God and God's Messiah, Christ, and God's people, and to a story about God and just one person, me. And in this story, it shifts from Christ and community to individualism, and that's not biblical. We need the latter without cutting off the former. Cutting the plan from the story leads to a salvation culture entirely shaped by who is saved and who is not saved. This is an important culture. We affirm salvation in Christ alone, but the culture designed by God is to be a subculture, not the dominant one. The dominant culture is a gospel culture. And a gospel culture is shaped by the story of Israel and the story of Jesus, which moves from creation to consummation. It tells the whole story of Jesus, not just a Good Friday story. And it tells us that it's not just of personal salvation. It is that, but it's not just of that. But it is about God being all in all. This is the story that Jesus, not any human ruler, is Lord over all. Confess with your mouth. And believe in your heart means what it means. I just think that we don't know what confess with your mouth and believe in your heart means. And I think there's a generation of people who somehow think that they're saved because when they were eight years old, they raised their hand at a youth group event, which was emotionally manipulated, and, that, and that now they're good. Never, never, you know, not walking with Jesus, not really a Christ follower, but now they're good. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not diminishing any any, uh, 
event, anytime you trust God with your life. I'm just saying that works is always the result of trusting in God. You will always bear fruit. When Paul and Jesus talk about the sign of my disciples, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their love. Not you'll know them by their political, I mean by their theological, you know, brownie points, their favorite, you know, the things they affirm. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't necessarily have the wrong theology a lot of times. They just didn't know Jesus. They had no heart. He wasn't their Lord. And we're not going to go to heaven because our theology is correct. And we're not going to go to heaven because we do all kind of spiritual stuff. And I'm setting you up. I'm telling you because as you're not liking me, when Jesus has said it in a minute, because he's going to, then you're going to be like, oh, yeah. And if, if I'm wrong, if my interpretation of the scripture I'm about to read are wrong, then you tell me. The idea that someone could be considered a follower of Jesus and not bear fruit or live with some indication of a changed life is nowhere in the scriptures. There were fantastic failures and there was fantastic repentance. It is a change of heart that leads to a change of mind that leads to a change of action or it's not repentance, it's just regret. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says this, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God in other words, the recognition of our need for him. That, that repentance, that, that, that heart of, Lord, I need a new heart. That produces a repentance without regret, leaving, leading to salvation or leading to life. But the sorrow of the world produces death. If you're only sorry for the effects of your sin, you're no different than anyone else. Nobody likes to get in trouble. Nobody likes it when your sin causes you a little discomfort according to the goals that you've set for yourself. But repentance in the Bible isn't feeling bad for the effects of your sin. It's feeling bad for the effect that your sin has had in your relationship with God. Our problem is that we identify who God is in relation to who we are. And so by saying your problem is that you're a sinner and you need a savior and reducing it to that, We've reduced it to a transaction, to a consumer mentality. Hey, you got a problem, you need Jesus, I have Jesus, you can buy Jesus from me, you got Jesus, you're good. And that's not in the Bible what it means to be a follower of Jesus anywhere at all. The church isn't called to make converts, God does that. The church is called to live as the people of God on earth, telling the story of Jesus and announcing who he is, why he has come, what he has done, and inviting people to be part of God's unfolding and unstoppable plan. Here's my observation, if you try and make evangelists, you won't necessarily get disciples, but if you make disciples, you will always get evangelists. To, To evangelize is to pronounce good news. And so I'm not saying don't share your faith. I'm not saying don't, apologetics has no place. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that you and I are powerless to argue people or manipulate people or create the environment conducive to people to be into the kingdom. I'm saying we live for Jesus and we proclaim Jesus as Lord and King and we let people watch us live that out and the Holy Spirit does the rest. And if you manipulate or you coerce someone into saying some prayer, you don't know what you've done. I'm not saying the gospel isn't by, in faith, faith by Christ alone. I'm not saying that you don't have to make a personal commitment and trust in Jesus. I'm just saying that's not the end. I'm saying that that's the beginning. 
God's people living and loving as God's people is always a testimony and it's always attractive. And we don't have to use sales pitches or gimmicks or philosophy or intellect. Dowd Willard says this about the problem. If you ask anyone from the 74% of Americans who say they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ, what the gospel is, you'll be told Jesus died to pay for our sins. If we believe in this, we'll go to heaven when we die. And he continues, in this way, what is one theory of the atonement? And again, notice what he says. That is essential. That is an essential component of the atonement, but it's one piece of the atonement. That's made out to be the whole message of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, in this, in this setup, what does it mean to believe? Because we've reduced belief to, if you think these things, you're good. For some time now, the belief required to be saved has increasingly been regarded as a totally private act. It's just between you and the Lord. From the enhancement of a gospel culture with a profound emphasis on salvation, we've, der- we've arrived at the per- ability for a person to say he or she has had the right experience, which is far too often nothing more than, I'm a sinner, Jesus take my place. Again, necessary, but not the end. And he says a true apostolic gospel will have none of that. None of that. It's not a proper sense of salvation. Here's what he says, and this is the summary statement. Ready? What must be emphasized in all of this is the difference between trusting Christ, the real person of Jesus, and all that naturally involved, versus trusting some arrangement for sin remission set up through him, trusting Jesus only in his role as guilt remover. And so to as we, why we often fail at making disciples, he says this, your system is perfectly designed to yield the result you are getting. And then he says this, gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. And so they foster vampire Christians who only want a little blood for their sins, but nothing more to do with Jesus until heaven. Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm inviting you to be the people of God. And you say, that sounds good. Count me in. You'll never see me. And so if you're upset, if you're challenged, Matthew 7, Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus, wait a minute, that sounds like works-based salvation, Jesus. He must have the wrong theology. I mean, either that or that's not what he's saying. So if he's not saying that we shouldn't call him Lord, Lord, and he's not saying that we shouldn't produce fruit, what is he saying here? I mean, I, I'm not the brightest guy in the world. If I'm, I don't know, if, I, if, you, if you have some, if I'm getting this wrong, tell me. On this day, to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Jesus is going, look, you're going to come to me, and you're going to call me Lord. And you're going to announce all the stuff you did in my name, all the times you went to church, and all the money you gave, and the group you were in. And then Jesus says this. And then I will declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
I mean, I think I was, I was, I think I sort of sugarcoated my message a little bit, don't you? I mean, I think I was, I was kind of saying a little bit nicer than Jesus did. I didn't tell you to get out of here. I didn't say depart from me, you work as a lawless, right? I mean, Peter gets in the way, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Doesn't really care about offending kids about the truth. Now, if we know Jesus loves us and we know that he's not saying don't call him Lord and don't do stuff, what is he saying? John Piper says this, I never knew you means I don't recognize you as my disciple. I don't acknowledge you as my follower. You are a spiritual stranger to me. I never had a relationship with you. In other words, your motive for doing the stuff you did and saying the stuff you said didn't come out of a relationship with me. You're you're trying to be saved on the merits of religion. And Jesus is saying, I I never knew you. The problem with the Sadducee, when Jesus said, you've never been so close to the kingdom of heaven, is that he couldn't get to the point where he confessed Jesus as his savior. He trusted Jesus as the Messiah. If you don't do that, nothing else can happen. I mean, Jesus is not saying, obviously, don't bear fruit, because we know in John 15. But what does he say? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, I'm the vine, you're the branches, but if you learn enough about the Bible, and if you do enough of the right stuff, and hang around with enough Christians, you're going to do some stuff. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. But if you're connected to me, you will bear fruit. So we know he expects us to bear fruit. We know we have to know he's Lord. But we know that our salvation doesn't come from those things. Our salvation comes with trusting, not in just what Jesus did mentally, but actually believing. And having that belief change everything about our lives. Slowly, sometimes a little but not giving up. So when Paul says, I keep doing the stuff I don't want to do, the stuff I don't want to do, I do, he doesn't go, but I'm going to keep trying. I mean, my community group, we're praying for me. Thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ, is what Paul says. See, the best example of this is is Judas. Three years, walking with Jesus, casting out demons. Did he have a relationship with Jesus? No. You know who the idol of Judas's life was? Money. We're going we're gonna to talk next week about the rich young ruler. People think that's a story about giving away your money. That's not a story about giving away your money. It's the same story that was told to the Sadducee. It's the story of someone who's so close, and Jesus wants to bring it apart and, and bring him. Like, why do you call me good? Oh, because I know who you are. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about your life. And we're going to get more in-depth to it next week. But there's, there's ten commandments. Six of them have to do with the way we relate to each other. Four of them have to do with the way that we relate to God. And so he kind of brings them in. And he says to the guy, well, you know, you know the commandments. And he only lists the six that have to do with each other. And I'm sure that guy was real prideful. Oh, Jesus, you can ask anybody. I've been doing this since I was a kid. So does that mean I'm good? And then Jesus goes, well, you know who I am. You've been doing some things right, but you've got one problem. Your problem is you have an idol. And I'm going to tell you to do something extreme to remove your idol. And it says in Mark, Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And I think of how many times in my life did Jesus ask me to give up an idol and did he look at me with great love for him, great love for me. And then that story, it says the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Interesting that he went away sad. I mean, he thought about it. He made his decision. At least it was honest. Jesus tells us, I need to be the Lord of your life. You need to follow me. 
And we just, we don't go away sad. We just pretend. So like, oh yeah, Jesus, I don't, no, I'm not going to give you my life, but I'm going to hang around and I'm going to tell everybody I'm a Jesus follower. I mean, what difference does it make? And then we wonder why, you know, the church is not good witnesses. You look at stats, and we'll talk about some of them next week. Statistically, the church, you look at anything from giving, divorce. I mean, you can look at it, and we're no different at all than the world. It's statistically insignificant. Instead of the church creating a culture, the church has been absorbed by culture. And we reflect more of the world than of the first century. So the doing, it used to be called the way, right? You were Christians, you were followers of the way. But the doing, which is important, an invitation to do works and live different has to come as the result of the being. There are all kinds of people who do all kinds of religious stuff, but the source is what Jesus is getting at. God wants our obedience, but only if he has our heart. And if he doesn't have your heart, then you can't even think of obedience. Because the motive of your obedience will never be as a result of relationship with him. If you are a Christian, all of your life and ministry comes of, a, of an overflow of your love for Jesus. And if it doesn't, don't minister. Don't evangelize. I don't care, and you don't care my best. You don't want my opinion, what we can say. You, you know, I, that doesn't matter. It's not going to help you. If you can't get to the place where you trust, where you believe in him, then the rest of it, repentance, obedience, that, that doesn't even make sense. And so I don't care if you've been in church your whole life. I don't care what you've been told your whole life. What I'm telling you is if in your heart you've never surrendered, you've never, you've never really believed and trusted in him, then do it. And if you, like most of us, just have to continue, like Paul, to just say, Lord, I want you on the throne of my heart, then just repent. Take the time. It's an opportunity. Again, it's not a manipulation. We have an altar call. We provide time. Do your business with God. Nobody cares. It's not between anyone else. And when I'm saying this, do not hear that, you know, fruit. See, Pastor Brian said fruit. I don't see fruit in your life, brother. You're not walking with Jesus. Don't look at everybody else. I'm talking about you looking at you. That's why Jesus has to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Take the log out of your own eye. Yeah, people should produce fruit. And if you're in a relationship with somebody as a brother or a sister, you want to motivate them, encourage them, good. But if it's not out of love, keep your mouth shut. Check your heart, brother. (laughs) Check your own heart. That's what I'm saying. Because belief in the biblical context means trust. And trust means a pursuit of him. It doesn't mean I check the right box. I'm going to heaven. And we've done a disservice by reducing what Jesus did to that because God wants your whole life. And he's the only one worth committing to. Not your spouse or your job or your kids. Christ alone. And the saving death of Jesus, three things happened. Jesus died with us, identification. He died instead of us, representation and substitution. And he died for us which incorporates us into the life of God. The the writer says this, that is, he first entered fully into the human condition, not just our sinfulness, but the fullness of what it means to be human. Second, he died our death as a representative, as a substitutionary death. He stood in our place and he shouldered our punishment. And that punishment, according to the witness of the Bible, is double, both a physical death and a spiritual death. 
means Jesus made a way for us to avoid physical death and spiritual death. And third, his his death did something for our good. It produced forgiveness of sins, uh, reconciliation with God, justification before God that ransoms us from our slaveries and liberates us from all that entraps us. Ultimately, Jesus' death and resurrection leads us into the very presence and life of God. That means when we tell people, pick up your cross, we don't stop there. Because picking up your cross is not the, is not a, it's the entry point. It's not the end of the destination. Pick, pick up your cross and then be, you identify with Jesus' death and then you identify with his resurrection. It is death that leads to life. Pick up your cross and follow me is a path to life. It is not the end. We don't stay dead. Our flesh stays dead. I'm going to invite the worship team, Pastor Jamie, to come up. I read somewhere once this. We don't really believe in God if we don't enjoy him. You say, I believe in God. Do you? I don't think you know what believe means. I don't think I know what believe means. See, God expects when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior that we'll be radically changed. And we've said before, there's three themes in the New Testament. The Messiah has come. The coming in Jesus is the full self-revelation of God to the world through a chosen people. That he did what Adam can't do and the priests and the prophets and kings couldn't do. He did what I can't do and you can't do. He made a way. For us to live as God's people, the second theme is becoming one people for God. That means I don't determine who God is in relation to what I need. That means I determine who I am in relation to who he is. That means I look at who I am in relation to God, and I realize he's incorporating me into one of his people. The problem is we get it all twisted, and we start with ourselves as the center of the universe. And we don't understand why God is just an add-on. But in Christian community, you lose your identity. It doesn't mean you're, you don't have any will. It doesn't mean that you're, it means that your, your identity is in Christ and part of his body. It means you become part of a collective whole. But some of us want to stay individual. Oh, no, no. It's me. I'm in charge. I have my own goals. I have my own pursuits. I've, I've said the prayer. I'm good with God. I'm going to go to heaven. I just don't want anything to do with Jesus right now at all. And I would submit to you that that is not what Jesus means when he says, come to me, believe in me, that you may have life. And the final theme of the New Testament is changing the world together for God. Changing the world together for God. We're not just to believe in Christ and become one people for God, but we're meant to change the world system as disciples, contending for the faith, preaching the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only God. Not our family, not our jobs, not our finances, but Jesus Christ alone. What I want us to understand is that we have the great privilege to begin now living as God's people, doing his work, until not just when we die and go to heaven, but while we live with him on a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus Christ split history in half. And he should split our lives in half as well. There shouldn't be no marked difference in your life when you trust Christ.
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is in your midst. It is within you. It is the kingdom come. It is the garden of Eden, a foreshadow of the city of God where we will dwell with him forever. And that should encourage us and incite and excite us that trusting in Christ for our salvation is the beginning and that in that we can have new life. Stand with me. Pastor Jamie, oh, there you are, buddy.